0: With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the privacy Professor. We are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold.
1: Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 35th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also love to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is and certainly subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. You know, I really appreciate all of you who tune in, and I really love seeing all the many locations where my listeners are from. It takes me to your part of the world to know you're listening in. I want to give a special hello this week to the many listeners that I have in England, especially from London, Birkenhead and Watford. Thank you for listening. And I also have a large number of listeners tuning in from China, Japan and Australia with a large number in Albany, West Australia. So thank you. I'm very appreciative of all the many tens of thousands of you who listen to my show These numbers that I'm giving you are determined by those who listen at the Voice America Business website. You know the site logs the general city location based on a portion of the the IP address. Now these numbers do not include those listening in through all those apps that you can also use. So the numbers aren't including whether or not you're using those apps. Also, please check out my websites, simbus 360com and privacyguidance.com. Now, if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my radio show, please also get in touch. I have some great options and ideas for you to choose from. Thanks also for all your questions you're sending me. I really do appreciate getting them, but I'm really behind at answering them, and I apologize for being so far behind. Thank you for your patience. I'm thinking about doing a show in October or November dedicated to answering the ones I've got, not gotten to at that point. The questions are great, and they apply to most, if not all, listeners. And I'm actually going to answer a couple of them today during the main show with my guest. My October Privacy Professor Tips message was published on September 28th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've always provided them for free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy hero is. It could be at your work. It could be in your personal life or in your you know, family or friends. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now, for this week's tip for my show, I want to point out that October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, which is observed every October. Now, it was created in the U.S. as a collaborative effort between the government and industries to ensure that everyone in the U.S. has the resources they need to stay safer and more secure online. But this is a great idea also for all countries. And I know that many of my business friends and clients outside of the U.S. are also doing things throughout this month. So here are my tips for this week. Number one. Go to privacyguidance.com and click on the Privacy Professor Tips button, and then you'll see a list. Click October 2018 at the top of that list, and you'll get to my October Tips there. And within the October Tips, I have a section that's called October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, what you can do. And I provide four ideas that everyone the general public as well as businesses of all sizes can do to improve their data security and personal privacy. Also, number two, go to staysafeonline.org and they have many ideas for you there as well. Now, in today's episode, I am continuing my series on voting security with my fourth show on this topic. You know, I've been long concerned about voting and elections security, long before the 2016 U.S. elections. But with the increasing number of different voting and election systems and applications being used in the U.S., which is really staggeringly large and diverse as they are in other countries. There are more security risks now than there have been ever before. And the number of people involved in elections is also a significant factor that impacts election security, along with, of course, the physical access security to the voting equipment and paper ballots and registration data. So the resulting complexity in this environment creates many real voting security issues that must be addressed. And the risks are going to just continue to increase as we get more types of tech and, and more ways to vote. So efforts to mitigate voting security risks must also remain vigilant and address all the new as well as all of those longstanding risks. I wanna provide you with just a few stats that I think you'll find interesting related to voting and election security for you to consider before we start our discussion. So in mid-July 2016, Neil Jenkins, a director in the Office of Cybersecurity and Communications at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, reportedly in the New York Times, learned that someone had hacked the Illinois Board of Elections. And according to the New York Times, someone or some group was trying to infiltrate the election system itself. The Illinois intruders that had breached the network in June um, reportedly spent weeks within exploring the systems. And after finding the state's voter registration database, they reportedly downloaded information on hundreds of thousands of voters. Then what was possibly or probably by accident, the attackers crashed a server, which got the attention of the officials that there was somebody in their systems. Then in early August of 2016, Jenkins then reportedly learned of yet another breach, this one in or on, an Arizona state website, and it appeared to come from one of the same IP addresses that had been used to attack Illinois. There are around 350,000 voting machines in use in the U.S. today, and they all fall into one of two categories, according to various reports. Optical scan machines or direct recording electronic machines. And according to a wide range of voting security experts, each of them has security problems, some of them significant. Now, Homeland Security has designated the nation's election system as a critical infrastructure, along with the nuclear reactors and the defense bases and banks and other key sectors. Congress approved an initial $380 million almost a year ago, not quite, but almost, for states to use to improve elections and voting security. Now, many states and territories applied for those funds, but there were some that did not. And of those that did apply for the funds and were granted the funds, what's interesting is that many still have not used all or even any of the funds to improve their voting system security. For example, the District of Columbia, where our nation's capital is located, was awarded $3 million to apply towards improving the security of their voting and election systems. But as of mid-September, per a a DC local news station, WUSA 9, They've not spent any of that grant money as of that point anyway. Now, I could go on and on with stats, but I want to get into these issues and more with my guest. And I am happy to speak today with an expert in voting security who has devoted a large amount of time over the years to improving voting and election security, along with doing many activities to raise awareness of voting security risks. Today, I'm happy to speak with Jake Braun, Executive Director of the University of Chicago Harris Cyber Policy Initiative, CPI, and CEO of Cambridge Global Advisors, CGA, where he provides strategic direction and consulting for high profile cyber and national security initiatives. Now, prior to joining CGA, Jake was the director of White House and public liaison for the Department of Homeland Security, where he was instrumental in the passage of the Passenger Name Record Agreement, one of the largest big data agreements in history. In addition, he worked on the development and implementation of the Homeland Security Advisory Council's task force on cyber skills. Jake is a fellow at the Council on Cybersecurity, and is a strategic advisor to the Department of Homeland Security and the Pentagon on Cybersecurity. He's also faculty at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where he teaches cybersecurity policy. Jake, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my
2: show. Well, thanks for having me, Rebecca.
1: You know, I was interested in seeing that you led the team that created the very first Voting Machine Hacking Village at DEF CON in 2017, and that got a a lot of um, airtime, especially in the news cycles. What led you to create this village and provide the associated activities that were within it?
2: Sure. Um, Well, yeah, so I had spent several um, cycles on presidential campaigns uh, dealing with local election officials at the county and state level. And so I had a pretty good sense of what their kind of technology capabilities were internally. And while many of them uh, you know, are, are kind of good at what they do in terms of administering elections, uh, they are not the most high-tech offices on the planet, <laughs> um, mm. to say the least. And as I kept hearing election officials um, quoted in the media or even testifying on Capitol Hill saying things like, well, we have no evidence that any votes were changed or tampered with or whatever in 2016. um, I became increasingly frustrated that Mm -hmm. while I'm sure that statement was true, they weren't finishing the sentence. And the rest of the sentence should have been because we have no capability of understanding if votes were tampered with or not. Um, You know, these offices don't have, you know, high-end cyber forensics tools. Uh, They don't have, you know, the scanners and and other, um, you know, DLP technology in place uh, to be able to go back and see if Russia or anybody else for that matter changed um, or altered votes. And Mm -hmm. so what was frustrating was not that they didn't have evidence. I You know, I have no idea what happened one way or the other. What was frustrating was that, the public seemed to be being led to believe that things were far more secure than they really were and that we had um, a far better sense than we actually do of what actually happened in in 2016. Um, And I was never really out to kind of prove that votes were changed or altered or whatever um, because I don't think that's even possible and and I don't think it would do us any good anyway um, as a country. Um, what What I was very interested in was trying to, um, I start to identify the vulnerabilities that exist in our voting infrastructure and also, you know, make those vulnerabilities public so that the, the public was actually aware of, of how um, hackable or insecure our voting infrastructure is. So mm-hmm. I called up a friend of mine whose name is Jeff Moss, who's the founder of DEFCON, the, the um, largest hacker conference in the world, and said, hey, you know, we should do this year – uh, considering everything that just went on in the news in 2016. And he said, what? And I said, we should hack voting machines. And he said, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> and he yeah. hung up and went on eBay, and turns out you can buy voting machines on eBay. And so he <laughs> did that and called me back and said, all right, let's do it.
1: That is really interesting. And it's so funny what you can find on eBay, because I know in just other industries, I've Uh, had folks find medical devices still with patient data in there and and even mainframes. So, yeah, eBay must have been a great marketplace for you to use. Um, What type of systems did you actually end up using then within your uh, voting machine hacking village?
2: Uh, Well, we had machines that were really used all over the country. Um, uh, Most of the big vendors – you know, had machines that we, that we had there. They were, you know, of both kinds that you talked about, the OptiScan as well as the DRE, uh, even the electronic poll books, um, where instead of going in and checking in uh, from a um, an actual paper book that you would, you know, check off or sign in like they did years ago in many places, they have kind of a computer with names on it that they check you off on. So we had those and a bunch of different accessories and so on. And then, because um, we're trying to represent the whole voting infrastructure, not just the machines, because the machines are just one piece of it. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually got a company called uh, KIG um, Cyberbit that uh, produces cyber, range, or cyber ranges, which are kind of virtualized um, network environments. And mm-hmm. they worked with uh, the folks in Cook County, Illinois, to develop a, a kind of mock network that looked a lot like... Um, uh, a real election officials network. And so we had folks that were able to sit there and and kind of defend and attack the network um, that was just like a clerks network, as well as um, go in and take apart the machines and hack into them and so on.
1: Wow. So are the types of machines you use then... Are they still being actively used in the states or,
2: you know, territories today? Yeah. Um, in fact, the machines that we had at the conference this year covered uh, 32 states. So, mm. you know, generally, if, if you vote in the United States, it is highly likely that you vote on at least one of the machines we had at the conference. Um so, there were nearly all, all of the machines but one um, are currently in use in the country today. Oh wow, well, and that
1: makes sense though, because just think about each state's responsible for budgeting for their their own elections right, and for um, for getting them planned and 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 deciding how they're going to be run. I mean, I'm, I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa, and I've lived in Iowa all my adult life. And I can tell you, you talked about the paper um, registers where people check off your name, literally, with a, a pen. That's that's what it's like where I go to my polling place. So th- those are still used mm-hmm. widely, I would think, in many locations throughout the U.S. that isn't, you know, in one of the, the very large urban areas, perhaps. Um, so that's interesting. Well, so when you were doing the hacking village, something that intrigues me is how often Wi-Fi connections are unsecured. Did, is, was that a factor with these machines? Did they have Wi-Fi connections or were they all hardwired?
2: Uh, So last year, there was a machine that we hacked into that was connected uh, or that was Wi-Fi enabled. And, of course, that was the first machine uh, that the hackers were able to take down. It took them, I think, all of two minutes to completely take over the machine. Uh, And they (laughs) did it remotely. So they didn't even have physical access to it. Um, Fortunately, that machine was only used um, in one state. that Everybody else had pretty much decommissioned it by that point. Uh, it was the state of Virginia, and to Virginia's credit, um, they decommissioned that machine uh, a year earlier than they had planned on on it, um, in large part because of uh, what we demonstrated at DEFCON. And so they they got the results of DEFCON and decommissioned the machine literally within a couple months um, of DEFCON and before you know their their elections that year, which was a pretty big lift on their end. Um, so fortunately, that machine is not used in the United States. Um, Today, I I don't believe it's used anywhere. Uh, The rest of the machines that we used did not have Wi-Fi connections. Um, However, interestingly, uh, the hackers were able to do remote attacks um, on the machines without Wi-Fi. So, um, several of the machines uh, were able to be attacked through network connections. So, if if the machine was hooked up to a network, uh, they could be attacked um, and successfully taken over that way. Uh, there are also some of the cards. In some states, you kind of insert a card into a machine, and then it pulls up the ballot that's uh, you know, germane for you, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And so we found out we could hack those cards with a phone, uh, like a cell phone. Um, or what was even more discouraging was we could buy cards on, like, Amazon or whatever that mm-hmm. are indistinguishable to the human eye, uh, from the cards you would get at the polling place, and you're able to program those cards with your phone, um, so wirelessly, and uh, uh, and then take those into the polling place, and you can vote as many times as you want, and you know, vote on multiple types of ballots, and, and all this type of crazy stuff. So
1: wow, was, that is crazy. Uh, crazy. And when you talk about that, you know, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you can still get to systems from remote locations, even if the systems themselves don't have Wi-Fi because of the fact that they're on networks. That's something that I I find so many businesses, they don't realize if there's some of their endpoints that are Wi-Fi enabled and they create a path out to somewhere else, that that becomes a pathway right to all of your other network devices. So uh, I think that's great that you highlighted that. To, to show that, you know, doesn't matter if the systems have Wi-Fi or not, they're still vulnerable depending upon how the network security as a whole is actually configured and how good the security is there.
2: Um, yeah, and in fact, you know, one of the biggest um, problems we found this year, one of the most, I guess, glaring or um, frustrating, I guess, probably the best word, problems that we found was that, uh, there's a, a flaw that was identified back in 2007 on the uh, on a machine made by the company ESNS. s That's one of these big county-based optical scanners, and uh, the hackers figured out that either you, you could um, plug an Ethernet cord into a, a jack in the machine, um, or you would have to put a zip disk, uh, plug a zip di- di- disk into the machine um, you had to do one or one of the other of those to program the machine for that year's election, like to decide that you were going to have Hillary and Trump on the ballot as opposed to Obama and McCain or whatever. Um, So there's no other way to do it besides one of those two. And so the Ethernet cord, obviously, I just explained, you know, we were able to show that once you got into the network, um, if the network was connected, you could take over the machine. Uh, Mm -hmm. What we also figured out was that the zip disk generally it would be programmed on a machine that was on the network. So, again, you know, the bad guys just have to get on the network, and then uh, once you plug that zip disk in, you know, the malware can just automatically download itself, and then the attacker doesn't need need to have access to the machine. Some, you know, unwitting, uh, you know, and well-meaning, by the way, election staffer would take that zip disk, out, plug it in, totally unawares that there's malware on it, and then that can... Um, totally take over the machine, uh, and and the frustrating thing about that was that the uh, the flaw was discovered in 07 and still persisted um, in the machine that we were looking at that was used in uh, 2016. Um, so over a decade later, uh, the mach- that, that flaw had still not been fixed, even though they had been told about it earlier.
1: Well, that's really um, alarming. I mean, with regard to discovering a flaw. And so it, why, why was it not communicated? Was it held or not communicated by the voting system vendor? Or was it through, you know, government saying, well, let's not alarm people by letting them know about this? Or, or do you know? And maybe if that's something you can't discuss, I, I would understand that, too. But that just is, uh, you know, that's kind of concerning.
2: Yeah, I mean, what we, it is concerning because there's kind of a process, right? Like there's always mm-hmm. flaws and bugs and so on in and, and anything, a human mix, right? Um, and mm-hmm. so we don't begrudge anybody for having a flaw. We begrudge them for not fixing it after they're told about the flaw, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so there was a report commissioned by the Ohio Secretary of State in 2007. And in that report, uh, they identified this flaw, um, several of the people actually who were in Uh, at DEF CON uh, were were well aware of this report and so on. But anyway, um, they identified this flaw. They then disclosed it to the vendor. And uh, the vendor, at least in the case of this machine, um, and, you know, you would presume the rest of the machines that are out there, you know, did nothing to fix it. Um, And so the government did what it was supposed to do, which was was told the vendor uh, about the flaw. And then from there, we don't... We don't know what happened. We, mm. we just know that it, it doesn't seem to have been fixed. Well,
1: yeah, let's let's continue talking about this. It's time right now to take uh, a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors. That I do appreciate so much. But um, let's stop here, and when we come back, we'll uh, talk a little bit about that and then get into some other interesting um, topics. So today we're speaking with Jake Braun about voting security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as make sh- show topic suggestions using my email, Rebecca Harold at com, and through my website, Simbus360.com and privacyguidance.com. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back after these important messages from my sponsors.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Simbus360.com? The Simbus system includes information security, privacy and compliance management, policies, procedures and forms, third party and vendor management, training and awareness breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers AlienVault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit simbus 360com
1: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere.
0: Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. That's RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor.
1: Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's business channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We're speaking today with Jake Braun, Executive Director of the University of Chicago Harris Cyber Policy Initiative and CEO of Cambridge Global Advisors. And we've been talking about voting security, and more specifically, right before the break, we were talking about the voting machine hacking village. And over the break, why Jake and I were talking about, you know, some of the, the, the reasons why maybe the the vendors didn't uh fix that flaw from two thousand seven and Jake maybe you can uh describe some of what you you were telling me about over our break here
2: sure yeah no it, it's just um you know been been a real uh interesting experience over the last few months um this particular vendor that we're talking about has you know been threatening to sue uh DefCon and specifically the the voting village um, for the past several months now, both kind of overtly and and um, uh, as well as kind of implying it in, in multiple communications, um, you know, to the media as well as letters they put out and so on. Um, hmm. And so we actually had to get the um, great folks at the the Harvard Cyber Law Clinic. Um, to uh, agree to help defend us, um, if in fact we're um, we are uh, you know if legal action is taken against us, um, you know thankfully, they see uh, the folks at Harvard see the value in what we're doing and and how we are you know really adding to the body of knowledge around um, um, election security and and uh, identifying vulnerabilities that uh, can be fixed. but uh, it got to a point where uh, a bipartisan group of senators, so Senator Harris uh, and Warren on the Dem side and Senator Collins and Lankford on the R side, did a letter to uh, the vendor, ESNS, a public letter saying, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you should stop, uh, I guess, harassing, for lack of a better word, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this hacker conference. And frankly, we think you should be working with them and other researchers on identifying. Uh, vulnerabilities that can be fixed in, in your equipment. And then the vendor sent back a letter to to them saying, you know, essentially, oh, we look to, you know, work with the research community, but but essentially not with DEFCON. Um, and then at the end of it said, oh, and by the way, we think that you all should investigate DEFCON uh, for the fact that they let foreigners into the conference and let them look at voting equipment as if like foreigners couldn't get their hands on Voting equipment. And it's funny, in response, um, President Trump's White House cybersecurity czar, uh, who was speaking at the conference and uh, later on Twitter, uh, said, You know, the one thing that we can be sure of is that our adversaries have a room just like the one uh, at DEF CON where we're hacking into voting machines. And, uh, you know, he acknowledged that, you know, they, that, that, that we can be sure our adversaries are doing the same type of research as DEF CON is. Um, You know, the difference, and these are my words, not his, uh, Mm -hmm. is that we have to play by the rules and how we get these machines and software and so on. Uh, Whereas, you know, the Russians or whoever, I mean, they can just go steal it. They don't have to find, you know, what you can legally buy on eBay. Uh, They they just take what they want. And in fact... Um, if you look at David Sanger, uh, New York Times columnist, most recent book, uh, Perfect Weapon, um, he actually spoke at the conference for us. He was our keynote, uh, talks about how for the six months leading up to 2016, um, there were two kind of top Russian intelligence agents who drove around to most of the battleground states and other places to, to research, um, how our elections were, um, you know, administered and, and get a better sense of the, the U.S. electoral process. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we have to assume that they probably, you know, stole some voting machines for them to look at. And, and, uh, and then on top of it, obviously, we know that because of the NSA leaker that the Russians hacked into, into the networks of one of the vendors, at least one of the vendors, um, uh, back in 16 as well. So they've already demonstrated that, that, you know, they don't play by the rules when it comes to getting equipment to do research on. Um, unlike us, of
1: course. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of sad that in this day and age, there's still still so many who think ignorance is a security control. You know, let's not tell people about what's going on or what the the vulnerabilities are, because then if they if we don't tell them, they won't know. They don't realize that, like you said, people are figuring it out on their own and they're using social engineering and actually going around to the different places together gather all of this uh, knowledge. So, yeah, that that's very disappointing to hear, but I, I'm kind of not surprised because that's, you know, that's been around for decades where if you discover a vulnerability, those who created the systems historically have said, oh, don't tell anybody because then they're going to use that against us. It's like, well, they're probably already using it against you because if we figured it out, probably other people are figuring it out too. So,
2: um, yeah. Well. Well, you know, I think, you know, Jeff Moss said something, you know, he's the founder of Defcon and Black Hat. And, and when we released mm-hmm. our report from this year in Congress uh, last Thursday, uh, his, his um, you know, speech or whatever was very interesting because he talked about how, you know, over the 26 years of Defcon, he's just seen this over and over again, where mm-hmm. as the the hackers, you know, become interested in, you know, a particular technology, and they start hacking into it at DEF CON, you know, that industry, you know, gets all up in arms about it. And, um, and he's like, you know, a couple of years back, it was cars, you know, they were all, yes. now they're fine. And they they recruit from DEF CON, actually, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he's like, and now it's voting machines, but, you know, they'll get over it eventually, and until it's the next thing. And I, and I think that, it's really interesting, you know, when you hear people talk about the fourth industrial revolution and all of our stuff being attached to the Internet, um, it seems to me like where you see these flare-ups of industries kind of trying to stop hackers and others from um, researching vulnerabilities in their products, it's whatever the next high-profile industry to have some of its stuff start touching the Internet either persistently or periodically, um, because that's kind of, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: a, one of the places where where hackers and researchers will, will look first. I mean, your very first question was about um, us hacking into the machines via Wi-Fi. And mm-hmm. it seems like as each new industry has their stuff start to be attached to the Internet, is the next industry that has DEF CON and others start looking at it, and then they are the next one that gets all up in arms about about the research and then, you know, with uh, – And then we kind of do this dance until they get used to it again. And then they'll have a bug bounty program five years from now,
1: you know. <laughs> yes you know I work with a lot of organizations that are in like IOT uh, types of of work where they're creating these really cool new types of devices and and a, a lot of times they come to me to say oh well we have to meet regulatory requirements so they want to do the minimum necessary to meet compliance and it's always like well you need to think about all of the risk as you're designing these. Tools and the software—you uh, can't just wait until you're done and try to put a, a security band-aid on it because then it's it's never going to be as an effective of a tool as as afterwards. So yeah, you know, it, no wonder they always take so long to get it. Can you imagine if an organization actually took the initiative to be innovative and build all of that security? into their devices from the get-go, you would think they'd be the market leaders uh, right away with all their other competitors not doing that. so um, Yeah, no, I, I'm, I I, think so. You mentioned that you have other folks uh, at DEF CON. Of course. I mean, it's, it's famous worldwide as being, you know, one of the premier and, and best events for learning about vulnerabilities and so on. And it's definitely... Matured over the years from how it started out, but with regard to the folks from other countries, I mean, what was their feedback? Did did anybody say anything uh, from other countries about the fact that you had such a um, activity going on?
2: <laughs> yeah, m- most of them, uh, their number one, uh, you know, response back to us was. Well, if I bring the voting equipment we use in my country, will you, well, can we hack into it next year? And, of course, we said yes to all of them. So um, yeah. that's actually one of our goals of next year is we want to try and get more equipment that's used in other parts of the world.
1: Oh, that would be awesome. That would be – you could probably fill up the whole week just with all the different systems and what you're doing with them, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, Talking talk about the systems um, – I want to get to some of the the specific vulnerabilities, but before we do, did you do anything with like physical access? Because I know so much of what I've seen over the years has to do with, you know, you might have great technical controls, but then you leave the, um, the, the attention to the physical access to the systems themselves wide open. And that's how people can, exploit that physical vulnerability, too. Was that a, an aspect of what you did there as well?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, while the thing that's getting the most attention uh, right now, just because of, you know, the report we release, re- released last week was this machine with the vulnerability from uh, over a decade ago. I, I think the, the the thing that may be the most um, Uh, I guess disconcerting from an individual machine level is this particular machine. It's used in 18 States today. uh, Mm -hmm. And there was a, there's this great video online um, that folks can, can look up if they want Uh, this woman who's a lay person. She's not a hacker. She just happened to be there. And she said, Hey, can somebody, what's the fastest machine to hack into? And somebody showed her how to basically take a pen, like a big pen. Mm -hmm. And, Hack into the machine with a pen um, in two minutes. So she was able to open up the case and then, you know, do a couple things, and and then from that point totally take over the machine and do whatever she wanted with it—add votes, delete votes, whatever. Um, and the crazy thing about that is not just that it, that she could do it with a pen, um, uh-huh. but that it only took two minutes. And it takes the average person six minutes to vote. And so yes. one of the criticisms of us. Is that, oh, well, you know, in real life, people aren't sitting there for three days alone with these machines and able to do whatever they want. And our response, of course, now that we put up this report is they don't need three days. They need two minutes and a pen. Uh, yeah. Home. And, you know, and, and she would be out of there uh, faster than the voter next to her had cast her ballot. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. um, yeah, the, the physical access pieces is is a very real thing and unfortunately you don't need much physical access to be able to to you know really do a number on these machines.
1: Yeah, and you it- To your point about the two minutes, I mean, from personal experience, when I go to vote, I remember one time I was at the back of the line watching, you know, where people were going into the booths, And this one guy went into a booth and he was there for over 20 minutes before I got up to to go in. And, you know, when I got out, I saw him finally was out and he was talking to people, he said, I just couldn't make up my mind who to vote for. So that's why it took me so long. (laughs) So, you know, it's not unusual for people to be in there for long periods of time when, like you said, they could get their, you know, get into the devices themselves. Oh, that's a great story. Well, you know, talking about vulnerabilities then, I have a question that I got from one of my listeners. There's been a lot in the news about the mobile... Uh, apps to do voting with, and I think it was uh, going to be started or tried, was it in West Virginia this year for the military who are located outside of the U.S.? Um, They had developed, yeah, so they, they developed a mobile app for them to use, and a lot of my listeners were concerned about that. So one of my listeners, Cynthia, sent a question. She said, with regard to mobile voting, I am very concerned with those mobile voting apps. How would citizenship be verified if they're using them from outside of the country to vote? How could it be ensured that a person votes only once and without the ability to verify these issues isn't that putting our democracy at stake, basically, as a nation to do mobile voting all over the world uh, from apps that, you know, we aren't sure are are really secure? And maybe there have been tests to show that they are. But what are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, well, let's see. So, uh, you know, in full transparency, on not on that project, but on a totally different project, one of the funders of that is also a funder. Of uh, some research again, separate. It's not about the West Virginia thing of mm-hmm. uh, of ours um, okay. that we're doing. So again, I just want to make sure that's clear. Uh, oh, but anyway, that. so um, so I think there's a couple of different things. I think number one, um, the that project was about folks trying a bunch of different things to figure out how we can increase voter participation, which is, which is a mm-hmm. separate problem from security, but a problem nonetheless, that's worth a whole heck of a lot of research and time and effort being, being put into it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do, um, you know, I, I I do think it's valuable for them to try and look at kind of types of voting um, or, or, you know, styles of voting or whatever as a, mm-hmm as one of the potential fixes to increase voter participation in the country. Um, I think that the, you know, the security issues were kind of very well documented. Um, in fact, I think it was right before DEFCON, a bunch of the um, security uh, vulnerabilities or whatever, you know, with that particular program came out and were were pretty clearly highlighted and, and folks were kind of up in arms in the... Um, in the voting uh, uh, security community about it. I do think that what I've seen from that group, as well as some others, is is actually some really interesting um, kind of middle ground that I think can go to kind of solving this problem about participation, but also being able to address a lot of these security concerns, which is trying to figure out how to partner with... um, the U.S. Post Office and local election jurisdictions to create um, very kind of um, easy-to-use, you know, simple, whatever, uh, applications for folks' phones where they can request a paper ballot, Mm -hmm. um, have that kind of seamlessly interact with the post office and so on, uh, have the post office get them that ballot, um, figure out ways in which that... Voter can be reminded to send that ballot back in so it doesn't wind up causing more problems on Election Day where they show up to vote in person because they forgot they got a ballot. And they're like, oh, well, you can't vote because your ballot – you already got a ballot, which just causes all types of problems. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's some really interesting things to do there that, that could kind of solve everybody's problems. Um, or solve a lot of the problems being raised around security and citizenship and all these other things. Um, I, th- I think that's really interesting, and I think that's one of the main places that folks seem to be focused on right now. Um, and and I, I think there's a lot of promise there.
1: You know, with the mobile um, apps for the voting It seems to me like, and maybe you I'm sure you've heard if this is going on or not, but it seems like there would be some way to incorporate biometrics into the process in some way so that maybe you could have folks sign up ahead of time and, I don't know, do either a voice print, a fingerprint, an iris print, whatever um, works best for the the different situations or locations, and then, you know, use that in – as part of the security controls for the apps as people are using them. Have have you heard about any biometrics being considered or anything that you can talk about even?
2: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that? I think that, that's, that's absolutely the biometrics piece and some other identification kind of strategies. The biometrics, the number one um, thing everybody's talking about now mm-hmm. for this, is kind of promising in, in a direction everybody wants to go, the problem is that folks haven't figured out yet, and I say yet because I think someday they will is how do you ensure a secret ballot um, mm-hmm. if you've got biometrics yes if, you know because in in most cases, when you get into the nuts and bolts of the database, the vote and the biometrics wind up being able to be linked at some point, and then mm-hmm. that means that you know even if you do a ton of masking and other stuff. You still, in reality, don't have um, a, uh, a secret ballot. Meaning, we we know who, who how pe- people voted, and so you know, I, I think that that sounds to me like a solvable problem, um, mm-hmm. and just one that we haven't figured out how to do yet. But uh, but anyway, that's the challenge everybody's trying to get around right now.
1: Yeah, you almost need some sort of uh, digital signature involved with a clearinghouse to manage everything. Perhaps, I don't know, just off the top of my head, but it it sounds like something definitely worth uh, pursuing because, like you said, we need more people to vote. I mean, um, the percentages in other countries of people who participate in elections is so high. And we just, you know, in the U.S., we need to to raise that participation, um, you know, in ways that are both secure and effective as well. Uh Uh, Talking about vulnerabilities, okay, so in the, the news, we hear a lot about paper ballots, and of course, paper ballots creates a, a, a really good audit trail. I mean, I started out years ago, I was an IT auditor, so I, I understand, you know, where they talk about needing that paper ballot. You need some way to audit the results to validate that, like you you know said earlier, that the votes weren't changed, so, you know... How are the ballot readers uh, that take those paper ballots? Because I know when I vote, why well, I, I vote on a paper ballot and I stick it into the ballot reader itself, what vulnerabilities are there when you have paper ballots involved in this way?
2: You know, like you, well, I mean, might- I guess, yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, for right now, I mean, it is still the most secure thing, as, as you suggested. But it's specifically secure when there's audits. -hmm. In place as well. There's these things called risk-limiting audits, which is essentially a small but statistically significant um, number of ballots that are hand-counted by humans, uh, you know, after the results. I mean, sorry, before the results are uh, announced. Mm -hmm. And the thought is that if that if you do that, you can get within close enough, you know, range of the machines that you can say, okay. You know we have a high degree of certainty that that the machines weren't hacked and so I think you know that's the key to to making sure the paper ballots uh, or that you get all the security you can out of the paper ballots um, with the machines themselves there's um, you know there's a whole host of, of vulnerabilities that I think the paper ballots don't address so one is is the machine I was talking about a minute ago that you know, you need either the Ethernet or the um, Ethernet cord or the zip disk to, to program the machine. You know, that that's an Optiscan machine um, that counts lots of paper ballots um, and still mm-hmm. has the vulnerabilities we discussed earlier. On top of that, though, you know, this year at DEFCON, we uh, downloaded the list of voters from the state of Ohio's website because they allow anybody to do it. You, you, or your listeners mm. could go download it right now, and we put wow. that in our cyber range and had uh, folks sitting there trying to defend and attack that uh, database of voters. And, you know, if, if attackers were to just go in and delete voters from the voter registration lists in a state or mess with the, you know, change the names and addresses and so on, um, they could create, you know, hours and hours long lines at the polling places um, mm-hmm. which, of course, people aren't going to wait for eight or nine hours to vote. And so you wind up disenfranchising thousands of people that way, regardless of whether you have paper ballots or not. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's something that, you know, we already know the Russians have shown interest in these registration databases. Um, it's it, Once they're in, it's pretty easy to go delete people or change names around. Um, and, and so that's a real vulnerability to the infrastructure itself, regardless mm-hmm. of whether you have paper or not. And then if you look at the other end of the, of the infrastructure, um, the thing we probably got the most coverage on um, this year was uh, we built kind of uh, mock websites that look like the 13 presidential battleground state websites that announced the election results. And mm-hmm. it's, it's so easy to hack a website that we had that the kids at DEF CON, not the adult hackers, yes. the kids, like there's a kids section of kids from 5 to 18 years old. Um, and they went in and hacked the websites and um, changed the names and the vote totals and so on. And, you know, we were kind of making a point with having kids do it. Um, but, but this is something that a, the Russians have, have already done hack uh, a Ukrainian website that announces election results um, a mm-hmm. few years ago and changed it to show their candidate won, and then announced that their candidate won on Russian media. Um, oh, wow. And on top of that, the the um, exploit that we were um, teaching or coaching the kids on on how to use to to hack the websites this year, and that exploit wasn't just some like you know I don't know kid friendly computer program. It was a uh, this particular attack, a SQL injection, that both the Senate Intelligence Report on election infrastructure and security, um, and um, OWASP, this group that, mm-hmm. that monitors website security issues globally, um, had said is the number one exploit um, that is a, a threat to election official websites. And so, wow. you know, several election officials came out and said, oh, well, we have tools that can protect against that. And we were like, well, great. We hope you do. Um, yeah. But but for, for the 8,000 of them out there, um, you know, 8, this exploit wouldn't be the number one exploit used against Um, websites around the world if it wasn't going to work against um, a bunch of the local election officials. And as the guys who built the websites for us told us, they're like, well, okay, fine, but it's not like we can't find tools to get around whatever um, uh, protections they have because, and again, nobody blames them for the fact that you can hack their website. I mean, a website's nearly impossible to defend. I mean, you know, the Iranian Red Guard was going after the financial industry uh um i think it was 25 banks in the united states and for two years the banks were trying to defend their websites uh. against the iranians and could never really totally do stop them you know right. we're
1: we only have 30 seconds left and i wish we could go on jake but thank you so much for being <laughs> on the show and i hope you'll come back after the elections i'd love to ask you the rest of my many questions that i had for you <laughs>
2: Sure, I'm happy to.
1: Thank you. So today we've been speaking with Jake Braun, Executive Director of the University of Chicago Harris Cyber Policy Initiative and CEO of Cambridge Global Advisors about voting security. You can see more about Jake at CambridgeGlobal.com and at my Voice America show site show site. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all that they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you
0: for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.